Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Keevil, and as usual, we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do hop over to yukonminingalliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. And this is episode 76 for the week of October 9th. And speaking of which, are you feeling a little slow today? A little sluggish, perhaps. Uh, a touch late into the office? That's okay. You probably had too much turkey, but we're here to help with another great episode that's going to power us through to the fourth quarter of 2017. Uh, firstly, though, happy Thanksgiving to all our Canadian listeners. Uh, we hope you had a great long weekend with family and friends. Uh, maybe got out there through the pigs getting around, caught some NHL hockey, uh, which is back in action, uh, though that's probably better news for our friends in Toronto and Edmonton than out here in Vancouver, uh, where the most exciting event tends to involve the draft lottery. Uh, but <laughs> I digress. Let's move forward. Uh, this week, Leslie is swinging by with the latest and greatest edition of the Geology Corner. Uh, this week, we're talking geophysics, uh, or more specifically, the top seven things investors need to know about geophysics. Uh, Leslie had a chance to sit down with senior geophysicist uh, at Sander Geophysics, Greg Hodges, and uh, she has all the nitty gritty on the subject. Uh, she's going to uh, talk you through geophysics and admit a little bit of something that geologists probably don't want you to know. So do uh, do stay tuned for that. Uh, Leslie's got a great edition coming up. Meanwhile, uh, we're also going to circle back on our commodity forecasts and look at some macroeconomic indicators. Uh, I recently received a great report from Scotia Capital uh, looking at commodity outlooks heading into the fourth quarter and beyond. Uh, we're going to talk everything from gold, to electric-fueled uh, cobalt buzz. Uh, we'll take some glance at price decks and forecasts and, and check out some info on the world's major economy. So it's going to be a great episode uh, to fill in those uh, post-Thanksgiving uh, turkey blues tryptophan. Thank you so much. Um, but uh, it's going to be awesome. So we're going to power on through. Uh, first, as per usual, uh, we'll take a look at our commodity prices for the day just to give ourselves uh, some context. Uh, gold was trading at $1,291 per ounce at the time of recording, while silver was at seven. $17.14 per ounce. Uh, meanwhile, copper was trading at $3.06 per pound, while zinc was up at $1.47 per pound. Uh, furthermore, West Texas Intermediate Oil was trading at about $5.84 per barrel. So let's dig into some macroeconomics. I recently received this report from Scotia Capital, as mentioned, entitled, Is the Rocky Road for Commodities Nearing an End? Question mark. Uh, it's a really great report. It runs about 65 pages. The slide deck uh, covers everything, as mentioned, from gold right through to fertilizers, uh, lumber, uh, lots of commodities outside of the mining industry as well. So it's kind of a nice, really good roundup of what uh, raw resources are doing uh, globally. Uh, uh, a couple sort of macro macro perspective observations that Scotia makes. Uh, there's four here. The first one being uh, the materials mining segment will rebound with the Shanghai index. Uh, number two, a shift to gold from copper as world purchase manufacturing index momentum stalls in 2018. Three, the base metal sector is now tracking ahead of the industrial metals sector. And four, positive earnings per share revisions for gold mining, but downside for energy earnings forecasts if West Texas Intermediate stays below 50 to $52 per barrel. Uh, and uh, we'll just dig into a little bit here. Scotia also released sort of their long-term price decks on a number of commodities. Uh, so we'll take a look at that. They do expect uh, that oil over the near term will remain uh, range-bound at between $45 and $55 per barrel, that's U.S., uh, over the next year uh, with a modest quote-unquote bias higher over time. Uh, so let's dig into a few of these long-term 
price forecasts uh, that Scotiabank is maintaining or updating, I guess, as we move into the fall of 2017. Starting with uh, West Texas Intermediate, we'll take a look at that. Long-term price of $65 per barrel, uh, $52 per barrel expected in 2018 before it moves up to $56 per barrel in 2019. Moving down on to precious metals, gold, uh, we expect around a $1,300 per ounce gold price through the long term. So this is uh, starting at the end of 2017, Scotiabank projects a $1,265 per ounce gold price, moving to $1,300 per ounce in 2018, where it will stay over the long term. Meanwhile, silver apparently has some up to upside. Uh, as we noted, trading at under $18, Scotiabank maintains a long-term silver price of $20 per ounce, uh, moving up to $18.50 per ounce in 2018. Meanwhile, copper, uh, obviously a hot topic recently as it moved to act towards $3. Uh, Scotia uh, is a little bit uh, more bearish on the supply-demand fundamentals in copper over the near term. Uh, around 2019-2020, they start to see a bit of a, uh, a supply gap forming that's going to drive higher prices. But in 2018, they expect copper to sit at about $2.85 per pound, moving to $3 per pound sustainably in 2019, where they expect it to stay in the long term. So we can expect that $3 plus per pound copper over the next 18 months to sort of solidify itself. Meanwhile, nickel also been a pretty hot topic as it's moved upwards off multi-year lows. Uh, Scotiabank expects it to stay at about $4.65 per pound over the bulk of 2017 before moving up to $5 per pound in 2018 and then furthermore moving over the longer term to a high of $7.50 per pound. So that's for nickel. Uh, and also, let's not forget zinc because it's also been a hot topic as we've moved towards highs we have not seen since the uh, zinc rush in 2006-2007. Uh, we've seen zinc, as mentioned, up around that $1.50 per pound level. That is the level Scotiabank expects in 2018. So they are projecting $1.50 per pound zinc in 2018, moving up to $1.60 per pound zinc in 2019. But as we've mentioned on this show previously, a lot of people foresee this zinc supply demand sort of imbalance being temporary uh, over let's say a three to five year period so over the long term Scotiabank does project zinc prices will fall back down to that one dollar per pound level uh, which we tend to see as a bit more sustainable if you look at opex costs in, uh, in terms of mines globally but let's dig into some details on the forecast for specific metals. Uh, uh, very quickly, I'll, I'll focus on copper, zinc, just due to the fact they're such hot topics right now. We'll look at the precious metals, uh, specifically gold. Uh, and I also want to talk a little bit about uranium, uh, because uh, it's not looking so great for the U308 markets, and cobalt, because that's been a, a very hot topic lately in terms of uh, the conflict materials coming out of the DRC, Dominican Republic of Congo, uh, and where sort of long-term ethical supply of cobalt is going to come from. So it's been a hot topic people are all over the place looking for promising cobalt opportunities so it's uh we'll take a little bit of a look at the supply demand dynamics in terms of cobalt but let's start out with everyone's favorite metal gold actually it's probably not everyone's favorite metal it's probably been frustrating a whole heap load of people recently with its inability to break that $1,300 per ounce level and as mentioned Scotiabank does not anticipate a long-term price above $1,300 they expect it to be around that $1,300 mark 
over the longer term. Uh, but a few interesting points they make in terms of specifics. Uh, Scotiabank notes that the short-term gold price forecasts, that includes 2017 and 18, are based, quote-unquote, primarily on economic factors. Uh, meanwhile, the bank's long-term 2019 and beyond forecasts are based on commodity supply-side factors. So this is interesting. We've talked about this a little bit. Uh, the dearth of sort of exploration spending, um, you know, the decline in uh, in mine supply is uh, forecast as a result of reduced developmental capital spending as well. This translates into less supply coming into the market. Uh, so basically, we're just see not seeing these sort of uh, developmental opportunities that could drive gold on the supply side. So over the longer term, uh, uh, Scotiabank forecasts that the gold scenario will be uh, underpined uh, largely by su supply side factors. Uh, they note that a significant portion of the positive year-to-date increase in the gold price was obviously due to geopolitical events, uh, i.e. North Korea, and the weakening U.S. dollar. So as noted, forecasts an average gold price of $1,265 per ounce in 2017, increasing to $1,300 per ounce in 2018 and beyond. So let's hop over to Dr. Copper and take a look at what Scotiabank is is labeling a slowly tightening market. Uh, the, the bank forecasts the copper market to revert to a multi-year net deficit position starting in 2017. That is after six consecutive years of modest net surpluses. However, Scotia does not anticipate the copper market to, quote, materially tighten on a physical basis until 2019-2020. Now, this thesis is largely based on the idea that uh, there will be relatively limited supply growth uh, after 2018. Uh, that's driven by, uh, quote, significant underinvestment in new capacity during the recent cyclical trough. Uh, in the bank's view, it is already, quote, too late for new capacity to arrive in time to prevent a high cyclical peak since developmental lead times on new projects are four to five years. And we've talked about those uh, turnarounds on copper builds previously high capital requirements very large projects tend to be higher risk in terms of execution uh, so what uh, the bank is essentially saying is there is a supply deficit coming and uh, the turnaround time for new projects is such that there won't be enough new supply coming online in time to meet this high cyclical peak so we're expecting that copper to uh, surge beyond that three dollar probably per pound level starting in around 2019 2020 as this uh, this new supply dynamic comes into effect in 2018, there will probably be a rush to build new mines, but they won't be able to meet that supply uh, timeline, so to speak, due to developmental restrictions, capital restrictions, etc. Interesting stuff. We have talked about uh, the lack of investment in copper development and exploration, falling head grades, obviously, in a lot of major mines and operations, which uh, will require higher capital costs and uh, higher copper costs to uh, to mine. And that also, uh, we'll speak a little bit on this uh, in another episode. Episode, but we're going to talk a little bit about block cave mining uh, and uh, how a lot of things going underground now and um, that's obviously more expensive to find more expensive to drill and more expensive to mine so uh, everything's sort of coming together to prop that copper price up above that three dollars per pound mark uh, as we talked about with numerous guests that is sort of the incentive price for new development as well based on opex so interesting stuff uh, on the copper side but let's talk about uh, the, the all-star metal for the year so far uh, being zinc and obviously, uh, if, you, if you're in mining markets, you haven't missed the zinc story. Uh, there's been a lot of buzz uh, about the uh, a lot of mine closures, uh, a lot of supply side uh, stories that that's creating this sort of momentary uh, 
<laughs> optionality play on zinc where it's going to surge uh, as we noted at the onset uh, a lot of people including scotia are forecasting this to be a relatively narrow window where you're seeing this this sort of 150 to two dollar per pound zinc uh, a lot of people are saying long term uh, sort of a comfortable level is closer to about a dollar per pound uh, but uh, in terms of zinc uh, scotia says the squeeze appears imminent uh, after five consecutive years of market deficits that have successfully eroded quote once bloated inventory levels uh, the zinc market continues to tighten, driven by several large and well-telegraphed tele supply-side depletions, as noted many mine closures. Uh, while zinc treatment costs have been low for some time because of the tight concentrate market, premiums on refined zinc are now trending higher. Uh, refined zinc inventories are reportedly approaching critically low levels, uh, currently 10 days of global consumption. Uh, in past cycles, Scotia notes zinc prices increased dramatically when inventories drop below this level. Uh, so based on the bank's deficits, uh, they forecast the theoretical depletion of all visible zinc stocks by year end 2018 which will likely uh, obviously pressure prices higher um Scotiabank notes that they were surprised. Uh, the anemic growth to date in Chinese mine zinc supply, uh, a key wildcard in the market, continues to disappoint. It's down around 5% year to date. Uh, the bank had assumed a 2.5% growth in 2018. So we are not seeing that sort of expected uh, turn on the taps Chinese mentality when it comes to zinc. Uh, we'd seen that in the past where, where supply just seemed to come out of nowhere from China when prices got to a certain level. We are not seeing that right now. So it looks like the party will continue for Zinc, uh, at least for the next probably 18 months. Uh, as Scotia notes, they have a longer term price of $1, but we'll see it spike up to around that $2 per pound level uh, through probably early 2019. So interesting times for Zinc markets. Uh, we'll keep our eyes on a few uh, good junior and uh, mid-tier deals in terms of where that supply may come from. But uh, always interesting to hear about any Zinc stories. If you have anything come across your desk, please fire it across my desk as we're always willing to take a look. Uh, but let's bounce over there's a few, uh, as mentioned, there's a couple other things I want to touch on. First one is uranium, uh, and the second one is cobalt. Uh, just because we do like to talk about that uh, electric vehicle lithium-ion battery market, there's been a huge buzz, obviously, around uh, about lithium, also about cobalt, uh, and a lot of the uh, the limiting reagents that go into electric cars and, and renewable energies and things like that. So there's it's been a big story, obviously, as we move through 2017, uh, and cobalt's really sort of emerged as perhaps the, the biggest uh, the biggest limiting factor in a lot of these talks. About about the expansion of electric vehicles because obviously uh, it's highly affiliated with uh, base uh, nickel copper deposits. Uh, much of the supply comes out of uh, uh, conflict areas like the DRC. Uh, so a lot of questions have risen about uh, where where can we find an ethical, sustainable supply of cobalt. But first, let's touch on uranium. Um, this is uh, <laughs> this is sort of the bad news story. We've, we've heard uh, some, some positive things about gold trending towards 1300s, positive things about copper and zinc. Uranium is sort of on the other side of the spectrum where we're hearing uh, not so great things about the supply demand picture for U308 prices. Um, as Scotian notes, uh, fundamentals further deteriorate for uranium, demand uncertainty rises. So uh, uh, the bank notes that including secondary material, they forecast the uranium market will remain in structural surplus until 2022 as primary supply continues to grow. Uh, we noted recently Kazakhstan has cut about 5.2 million pounds per year. Kazakhprom cuts uh, production cuts from their profile, but uh, Scotiabank predicts that those are insufficient, those cuts to balance the market. Uh, utility in 
inventories of U-30 remain elevated in Japan and China. Uh, Scotia notes several Japanese reactors have now restarted, but utilities are well supplied and will likely not return to the term market anytime soon. Uh, and also the planned pace of the very large nuclear buildup in China has slowed down reportedly uh, and growing demand uncertainly in the U.S., South Korea and France. Those are three of the top five nuclear fleets places additional pressure on long term health of the market. Uh, so uh, just to finish, uncovered U-308 requirements by utilities remain relatively low until and beyond 2020. So it's not looking exceptionally great for U-308 prices. Uh, we're sitting about that $20 per pound spot price uh, at the time of recording. That's well off. If you go back to 2010 when we were looking at about $100 per pound U-308. So it's really squeezing the producers like Cameco. Uh, as we noted, they've had some uh, supply shutdowns as well. Uh, and... Uh, it's not looking like they're going to get a lot of relief in the short term. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be a long haul on uranium. Uh, Scotiabank is one of many reports I've read recently that doesn't have the greatest outlook on U308 fundamentals. So I just wanted to mention that uh, it, they may come around, but uh, we're looking post 2020. So uh, if you if you're an investor in uranium, it's a long hold. It's a, it's a long hold. So <laughs> just wanted to mention that. But uh, let's hop on over to cobalt and electric vehicles because this is uh, sort of the big topic of the day everyone's covering this wondering what tesla's doing volkswagen's apparently putting out a huge uh, huge bid for cobalt supply as well uh looking to get into the ev market it's just it's ex it's exploded we've we've spoken recently to a number of cobalt companies uh robert freeland's clean tech which has been in the news uh we talked to pala investments anthony maluski about his cobalt 27 streaming vehicle so it's been uh, it's been a big story uh industry-wide so we'll take a little bit of a look at what uh, scotia is saying about the cobalt supply demand picture. So let's talk a little bit about stats on the electric vehicle theme, as Scotiabank calls it, uh, that continues to, quote, power ahead. So Tesla's sales ramp up continues uh, to significantly outpace the luxury vehicle market uh, and notably gain market share. Uh, Scotiabank estimates that Tesla plans to produce 500,000 uh, 500, electric vehicles in 2018, uh, which uh, is, is fairly ambitious. Uh, that would require the equivalent of roughly 75 100 million tons of cobalt. Uh, moreover, Volvo recently announced that it plans to phase out the conventional internal combustion engine in all its vehicles by 2019. Uh, meanwhile, France and the United Kingdom recently announced they intended to ban gas-powered vehicles by 2040. So this is sort of the narrative. Uh, we're hearing this everywhere. Um, Automobile manufacturers, governments, um, uh, NGOs, etc., have really pushed this sort of messaging uh, where we got to get rid of the internal combustion engine. And uh, what's the uh, what's the alternative? Electric vehicles. So EVs are hot. What goes into EVs? Everyone's looking at different metals that uh, that could be limiting. Uh, obviously, we're looking for the upside here. Um, and uh, in the terms of cobalt, supply deficits support higher prices, Scotiabank notes. Uh, cobalt prices have increased to levels not seen in a decade. They are still roughly 25% below those seen between 2007 and 2008. That is after adjusting for inflation. Uh, in 2016, the 95,000 million ton cobalt market transitioned from surplus to deficit, and Scotiabank expects the deficit deficit to grow from 4,000 million tons in 2017 to 5,500 million tons by 2020. Uh, the last time the market anticipated a multi-year deficit, that was back in 2007-2008, prices averaged $40 per pound of cobalt, again adjusted for inflation, and climbed as high as $50 per pound. Uh, Scotiabank suspects the market today 
from both the demand and supply perspective could support similar prices. And obviously the big sort of message here is that cobalt markets are already in uh, supply deficit due to things like cell phones and lithium ion batteries and, and, and how they're used in so many things. And this is before this huge EV electric vehicle boom, which is coming up. So the market's already in deficit. And then we have this huge sort of demand overhang that that is perceived to be coming due to government policy, due to narrative changes in how we feel about fossil fuels, etc. So that's really what underpins this investment thesis. Uh, also, Scotiabank notes the lack of a su- suitable substitution for cobalt that will also likely support higher prices. This is because cobalt's physical properties are not easily substituted or replicated, uh, and its market characteristics make consumption relatively price inelastic, as, and this has been the case historically, uh, which Scotiabank says, once again, should support higher prices. So this has become uh, quite a big story, obviously. I just covered uh, eCobalt Solutions uh, is one company I just covered who's looking at uh, at starting a, a production facility in Idaho, uh, in Salmon, Idaho, and in Blackfoot, Idaho, where they have a hydrometallurgical facility. Uh, that's about $183 million capital expenditure. It's funny because a lot of these deals, um, you you go back in the history and you can see the timeline. um, And Scotia talks about that sort of uh, boom in cobalt prices back in 2006, 2007. Uh, And a lot of these deals had uh, previously seen investment or some form of uh, capital build or development. uh, And then we're actually shelved over the intervening decade. And now we're seeing a lot of these projects take second looks, start to move ahead again in advance. So uh, it is uh, is an interesting uh, interesting market. And uh, the opportunity aren't plentiful. There's not a ton of different cobalt vehicles that you can look at and invest in. Uh, people will keep looking, but as we noted, uh, supply is is limited uh, just geologically and also uh, geographically. So it's uh, it's an interesting one moving forward. Uh, we'll continue to uh, cover that. Um, our uh, senior staff writer, Trish Saywell, did some awesome work on Friedland's clean tech vehicle. Uh, as noted, we talked to Cobalt 27, which is a streaming sort of concept around cobalt. Uh, if you'd like to check any of that out, out, please do hop over to northernminer.com. Consider hitting that subscribe button. It's a screaming deal at about 200 bucks for the year. That gives you electronic and paper editions of our releases, as well as access to the Canadian Mines Handbook, which is a great compendium uh, just to keep you updated on uh, property locations, uh, producer uh, information, etc., etc. Just a really good encyclopedia on mining and exploration property. So do think about subscribing. We uh, we recently upgraded our paper stock, actually, so the paper feels even better. It's Uh, It's pretty cool. I I have one in my office. It's great. But that pretty much wraps up my macroeconomic uh, segment for the week. Uh, Thanks again to Scotia Capital for providing us a little bit of insight on commodity outlooks and uh, future price decks. Uh, It's great to just touch base and look a little bit at uh, supply-demand fundamentals for some of our major narrative metals and minerals that uh, we've been looking at recently. But now let's uh, drop by Leslie's Geology Corner to find out what she learned from uh, senior geophysicist Greg Hodges from Sander Geophysics about what investors should know about geophysics. Uh, So this is, as noted, seven main geophysics points that Leslie's going to run through with you. Uh, I won't ruin any of them, uh, but uh, I will run this segment and uh, be back after the break. Everybody, this is Leslie Stokes with the Northern Miner, and for this week's Geology Corner, I'm gonna let you all in on a little secret that myself and every other geologist that you have ever met has been shamefully hiding from you, and that is 
we don't know anything about geophysics. <laughs> and I know what you're thinking. You're shocked, right? Like, how can geologists, the very people who are standing in front of a big color map dotted with bright pinks and blues at investor conferences, talking about the very anomalies that we're about to drill, how can we not know anything about geophysics? But it's true. We kind of don't. We all kind of fake it. Now, the only people who know anything about geophysics are geophysicists. To the rest of the population, it's witchcraft. In university, geologists are subconsciously taught that geophysics is actually not our responsibility. You know, we might dare to have a geophysics friend or two, but everything between the two departments are kept totally separate. It's kind of true. I don't know if it's like that still, but it was back in the day when I was going through it. And with deposits, you know, getting deeper and deeper, and harder to find, it's becoming way more important to understand what geophysics is all about. So not just for geologists too, you know, this is for investors. Because being able to tell, you know, the, tell a bogus geophysical anomaly from, you know, a really hot target can save an investor a ton of money. And of course, it saves us geologists like a ton of anguish as well. So anyway, um, I reached out to one of these wizard geophysicists to get the lowdown on what we all need to know about geophysics and how to make smart investing decisions. His name is Greg Hodges. He's from Sander Geophysics. And our conversation was so interesting, I decided to wrangle it into an article. So be sure to go online and, and check it out for more information. So, um, but yeah, I'll just do a little summary of it. And uh, Greg broke down geophysics down into two into seven main points. So let's get started. Point number one, guys, a company needs to have a geological model. So all those bright red dots on geophysical images are not these giant arrows pointing towards huge vats of mineralization looking beneath the surface. Sorry about it, but it's not. Most of the time, they're just picking out the many nuances of the rocks themselves, like changes in density, magnetism, conductivity, all of which can be caused not just by mineralization, guys, but by alteration, faulting, changes in rock composition. So what you see as bright red anomalies on a geophysical map could actually be just boring old geology. And in some situations, geology can accidentally mask the signature of a deposit. For example, you know, in the Lac de Grave region in Northwest Territories. So the, the kimberlites there are super conductive in, in electromagnetic surveys, right? Whereas in the Victor kimberlite in Northern Ontario, um, those kimberlites are not at all. And so why is that? Because the rocks surrounding the kimberlite are equally conductive. So it just gets kind of, you know, washed out. So yeah, a company really needs to understand the geology of an area and how those rocks could impact the signature of the deposit they're going after in geophysics. If they don't have a geological model, Hodges told me that that can be kind of a bad sign. Point number two, is there more than one type of geophysical survey to back up the anomaly? So like I mentioned, it's hard to see the deposit through the craziness of geology that surrounds it. And sometimes all those big red blobs you see on those maps can actually be you know, big red hearings, which is why it's good to have more than one geophysical technique that proves the anomaly could actually be an ore body. If a company doesn't have multiple types of geophysics to back up their target, usually I always like to ask them, why is that? So brings me to point number three. 
Do they have enough geophysical data? We've all heard the story of, you know, that one big giant anomaly suddenly becomes several small, subtle, tiny little anomalies when the company performed higher resolution geophysical surveys. So what do I mean by resolution? Well, each geophysical survey takes measurements at different stations along the line. And the spacing between each measurement point and the spacing between the lines dictates how deep and how clear the geophysics can look into the subsurface. So this is something that Greg really helped me understand because it's kind of, can be kind of complicated. But he broke it down. He said, you know, in a nutshell, the broader the step outs between the measurement points, the greater the volume of rock is being sampled, right? So big, broad surveys are good for looking for big, big deposits at crazy depths. Whereas, you know, if you're looking for a shallow or narrow deposit like, you know, an orogenic gold system, for example, you need to measure smaller volumes of rock to get that level of detail. It's the exact same as like, you know, TV and you look at the pixels. You want it to be pretty fine detailed if you have a deposit that's like, you know, 25 meters wide. So in those circumstances, narrow spacing between the measurement points on a geophysical survey of 25 meters would be able to pick up that sort of detail. And Realistically, like you can't find a narrow deposit using a large scale regional survey. The response that the deposit has, like its magnetism, conductivity, or whatever, it'll just get completely diluted in the rest of the data because remember, you're, you're taking a sample, that big giant block of rock. So it's important that a company has adequate resolution for the scale of deposit they're looking for. So you can ask them, like, what's the resolution on your survey? Does that fit with your geological model? So, um, and another thing is you need to make sure that the company has at least two lines of, you know, like of the survey itself to cross over the target before um, a geophysical anomaly can be deemed drill ready. Otherwise, you know, that big red blob might actually be a big red nothing. It's good to make sure that you can repeat that or you get the same signal of anomaly on, on multiple lines, not just um, one that happened to have magically crossed it. So point number four, what's the magnitude of the anomaly? You know, I forget about this and Greg reminded me of it. So all those brilliant shades of red and blue can be really distracting. But Hodges reminded us that not don't rely on color alone. You know, a company can shade an anomaly from red to green. They can hide things. They can make other things pop out just by adjusting the color scale. <laughs> In fact, it was funny, last week I was talking to a senior geologist and he told me that um, back in the day his boss had asked him to make a, to color a geophysical anomaly different colors on each section line. So it makes it really difficult to compare the anomaly between the sections, right? Like, is it increasing in magnitude? Is it decreasing? Like, these are the things that you kind of would like to know. So when you know the magnitude the anomaly, you can compare it to other anomalies on the property or perhaps other deposits nearby that fit the geological model. Like when I was talking to Fjordland and they were after their VTEM anomalies and they were specific, they're like, you know, we did this work to see how they compare to, say, the conductive or the EM anomalies from um, Voises Bay. And they, they did that research. They looked into it and they said, yeah, you know, it actually does share similar magnitude. And something that's geologically very similar. So yeah, you can always um, got to ask yourself, how does this anomaly stack up with its neighbors? It's a useful question to ask people. Point number five, 
Is the geophysical anomaly shaped like a deposit? So, really good geophysics. Looks like geology. You can kind of spot the folds, the faults, the big batholiths, you name it. So ideally, the geology of the deposit should also match the shape of the anomaly. For example, with volcanogenic massive sulfide deposits, um, you know, there are these small lenses of massive sulfides that maybe run for 200 meters length because of, um, and because there's sulfide content, they're really conductive. Uh, but we don't get crazy excited when we see a conductive anomaly that runs two kilometers in length because it doesn't make sense. You know, we chalk it up to being more likely graphitic sediments, which are equally conductive. So yeah, it's got to actually make sense with the geological model once again. Point number six, has the data been processed by qualified geophysicists? Inversions. I used to cringe when I heard that word simply because I had no idea what it meant. But thanks to Greg, the gist of it is now easy to comprehend. Thank you so much. An inversion is a processing technique, right, which wrangles raw geophysical data into two or three, into a two or three dimensional geophysical model. So the inversions can be constrained or unconstrained. And constrained inversions uses other geophysical data or geological criteria like drill holes, surface mapping, conceptual models to produce this inversion geophysical model. Whereas an unconstrained one is produced without any intervention from other data sources. Hmm, right? Pretty simple. So in a nutshell, constrained inversions are likely to be more reliable than unconstrained because it incorporates real data into the picture. And that being said, if a company makes the wrong assumption about their geology or the conceptual model, then the data could be forced towards something they expect and not something that fits the real world. Greg was very, very like adamant to point that out. So it's best if a company uses a qualified geophysicist to perform this inversion Rather than playing with the numbers themselves, which you actually can do, you can buy these inversion models software and you can just run it on your computer like anybody can do it. So, you know, it's kind of good to ask, you know, where did this inversion come from? Who did the work? And um, so Greg also mentioned, you know, the more company has to wrangle geophysical data with little to no additional data to support the model, the more nervous an investor should be. It's true. You know, you got to keep adding more data to find some more proof in the pudding. The final point, number seven, did a reputable company conduct a survey? And is it a well-known geophysical method? And I didn't know this, but voodoo geophysics is actually a thing. Hodges was telling me that like of dozens of geophysical consulting firms that make overzealous claims on the capabilities of dubious new technology. And even Friedland himself made a claim that new technology in geophysics can spot a deposit the size of a Volkswagen at a few kilometers depth. Now, I actually kind of remember him saying that, but Hodges says that it's impossible because as you hopefully have learned by listening, resolution falls off at depth. You can't see something the size of a Volkswagen kilometers deep. It's impossible. So it's best for tech companies to stick with the tried, tested, and true technologies. 
backed by reputable and experienced geophysical firms. You don't want your investing dollars going towards some guinea pig technology that somehow defies the laws of nature. That would just be silly. Gosh. And if you're interested in learning more about what I told you today, drop by our website and look for the article, Top 7 Questions Investors Need to Ask About Geophysical Anomalies. To get down and dirty with more information, you can even pick up the Northern Miners Mining Explained book for a comprehensive guide to understanding not just geophysics, but everything involved with the process of searching and discovering, developing, and extracting minerals. It's, it's awesome. It's a great layman's guide. It's $30. You can order it online. Go, just go under the About section of our website, and you'll find the details there. So anyway, in the meantime, hope you enjoyed this week's Geology Corner and talk to you next time. And welcome back on Into Studio. Uh, thanks again to Leslie and Greg Hodges for taking the time to lay out Geophysics 101 for us. And I, I know I learned a ton there. Um, I've been doing this for a long time, about six years. But uh, geophysics is, as Leslie said, a bit of voodoo to me. So it's always great to uh, get those sort of 101 style uh, introductions to certain elements of uh, geological and geophysical science that we might not otherwise get. And that's something we strive to provide here at the Northern Minor podcast but yeah this pretty much wraps up the show uh just one other sort of public service announcement or uh, note that i wanted to pass along if you have not heard about our progressive mine forum yet please do hop by northernminer.com check that out it is happening october 23rd in toronto ontario uh this is building on the success of our inaugural conference which was uh, as everyone will recall the canadian mining symposium in london england earlier this may uh we have the progressive mine forum and it's uh, it's looking like an absolutely great lineup it's continued to grow over the past few weeks uh some of the major headliners we have michelle ash who's the chief innovator officer of Barrick Gold, uh, John Brzezinski from Cisco Mining, President and CEO, Steve Letwin, uh, CEO of I Am Gold, and Matt Mason, the President and CEO of Stornoway Diamonds, among many other fantastic names. Uh, it's going to be a great selection of roundtables that covers every aspect of mineral exploration and development, uh, right from the drill bit to the head frame. Uh, and we're going to be looking at innovations, new technologies, and all sorts of great stuff uh, during the day. Uh, so as noted, that's on October 23rd. And we have a uh, great set of sponsors as well. Uh, we're working with IBM, we're working with Rio Tinto, PwC, Hatch, Major Drilling. So a lot of really big names in the in the uh, supplier side as well uh, that are going to bring a lot to the table, a lot of big mining companies. It's going to be a really exciting event. And I believe sponsorship uh, is still available. So do hop over, check that out on our website. That is once again, October 23rd in Toronto, the Progressive Mine Forum. Uh, Leslie and myself will actually be there. Uh, I'm moderating the roundtable on mine operations well leslie is moderating the roundtable on exploration so it's going to be a great event uh look forward to seeing everybody there it's going to be really fun uh but that pretty much wraps up our show for the week so once again i'd like to thank you for sitting down with us here at the northern miner podcast uh we always appreciate your listenership so uh this has been matthew keevil and i will talk to you next week <laughs>